Alrighty, church, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Revelation chapter 2, please. Revelation chapter 2. So about two weeks ago, we started looking at what Jesus had to say to the seven churches that are mentioned in in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And I said the reason why I wanted to take a look at these is that we recently finished up our study of the book of Acts. And in that study, we watched as the church had this ripple effect that moved out from Jerusalem. It moved into Judea. It moved into Samaria. And then it moved out to the known ends of the world at that time. And part of that rippling was uh, seeing the Apostle Paul going out into the Gentile world and he goes to the city of Ephesus where he started uh, sharing the gospel and he planted a church during his second missionary journey uh, there in Asia. And from there, it's believed that the Ephesian church followed Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations and they went out into the surrounding cities and planted other churches which are eventually going to make up the seven churches that are found in these two chapters of Revelation. And you can see this on this map here uh, on the screen that Jesus is making his way through. If you start down here, so Patmos over here on the left is where John has been exiled. So that's where this letter is being originated from. But up here you see, that was awesome. I didn't know you could do that. Um, Right above that is Ephesus. And then if you remember, that's where we started the first week, and then Smyrna, and then we're at Pergamum this week, and it's just going to continue going down in this circle, all the way down Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. All of those are in order uh, of what Jesus is writing to those churches uh, uh, from the Apostle John here in Revelation. Now by the time that Revelation was written, roughly 30 years has passed Uh, since the time that the church in Ephesus was planted. In that time, in those 30 years, we have some things that are going really well for these churches, and then some of the things that are going on there, they're earning rebukes from Jesus. And I thought we would uh, do well to look at these. We could uh, learn a lot from seeing what's going on in there that they're doing well, and the other things that we should be on guard against that's causing them to stumble. Right, because each one of them have good things that are going on, bad things that are going on, and it seems like each one of the bad things is a little bit different uh, than the other church. Right, So the church in Ephesus, uh, I mentioned that uh, that was probably where all these other churches had come out of. Uh, Jesus said that their love had grown cold. Right, they, The church in Ephesus was doctrinally sound. Jesus says, I, love you, I know your works. I know how how hard you are striving for the gospel, uh, how well you have stuck to the doctrine, but they have grown cold in their love of Christ and they have grown cold in the love of their neighbor. And so Jesus tells them to repent and go back to doing the works that they were doing when they first fell in love with Christ. And then after that, if you don't do that, Jesus says, I'm going to come, I'm going to remove your lampstand. So essentially he's saying, I'm going to shut the doors of your church even if that doesn't mean physically, 
If he doesn't shut it down completely, then that means that the church will no longer have the keys to the kingdom that, he, that was talked about in the Gospels where they had the ability to reach out and bind the things that need to be bound and loose the things that need to be loose. They would no longer have that authority because Jesus would have removed their lampstand. And the next church that the Apostle John mentions is the church in Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. Right? This church is one of two churches that receives no rebuke whatsoever. It's this church and the church of Philadelphia. They experience poverty and they experienced affliction for the name of Jesus. And he says there that they were getting ready to do some jail time as Satan has sent people against them. And so Jesus is trying to encourage them uh, for their faithfulness. He's trying to encourage them given the hardship that they're getting ready to face. So there's no rebuke whatsoever to this church in Smyrna. He tells them, do not be afraid of the suffering that's coming for you. And he reminds them that if you will be faithful to the end amidst all of this hardship and persecution, he says, I will give you the crown of life. So this is leaning into this idea that if you sustain your faith to the end, to your death, you will receive eternal life. And the church that we're looking at this morning, it's going to have the opposite problem that the church in Ephesus had. Right? That's the church in Pergamum. So while Ephesus defended their doctrine, while they clung to it to the point where they stopped loving people, because of how tightly they held to their doctrine, Pergamum has allowed their beliefs to be diluted by their culture, and they've begun to take on some of the sinful practices of the city around them. Right? This is what Jesus has to say about that. So follow along with me as I read verses 12 to 17 of Revelation chapter 2. It says there, Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. So as I mentioned before the last two weeks, each one of these letters to the church is going to have a similar outline that is followed through each one. They all begin with an authoritative opening that states why the people of that church should listen to what Jesus has to say about their church. In Ephesus, Jesus said that he was the one who held the seven stars and walks along the seven lampstands, which re represented the church. So he's in charge of all those people that are in charge of the church and in charge of the churches themselves. To Smyrna, Jesus emphasized three things. He says, I am eternal, I have resurrected, and I have knowledge of all the things that you are going through. All the hardships that you have faced, I have faced those as well. Nothing has escaped his gaze. And to the church in Pergamum, Jesus says that he has a sharp, double-edged sword. 
And we're not supposed to take this imagery of the, dark, of the sharp double-edged sword literally, though. Uh, in other places in the New Testament, this double-edged sword is used in reference to the Word of God. Right In Hebrews 4, chapter, uh, 4, verses 12 and 13, the author says, For the word of the Lord is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is about to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So notice there in this passage in Hebrews that the Word of God is referred to as Him. Alright? No creature is hidden from Him. All things are naked and exposed to His eyes. And then, if we jump to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him and apart from Him. Not one thing was created uh, that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. And so again, we see that the Word of God is personified. It says that He was with God, and He was God. And so the Word of God, this double two-edged sword, sharp two-edged sword, is also the creator of the world. He was with God and is God. And so in this brief verse in Revelation, when we tie everything else together that we know about this double-edged sword that was spoken of in the New Testament, Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum that He is God. He's saying that He is Creator. He cuts through bone and marrow and gets to the very soul of the person. Right? Nothing is hidden from Him. And you should listen to what He's saying because He is the one that is over it all. He is ultimately in charge. And so when He speaks, we should listen. And being God, He knows what the church in Pergamum is dealing with in their culture. He says, I know where you live. Right? If we said that to somebody, that might come across as a threat. Right? I know where you live. But when He's saying it, He says, that, I mean, I don't know that there could be much more of a threat than to where they live. He says, you live where Satan's throne is located. He says, you are faithful, you are being faithful to my name where Satan lives. I mean, you can't get much worse than this idea of where Satan has his throne and where Satan lives. Obviously, Jesus is using figurative language to make a point. Satan doesn't actually have a throne in Pergamum. Satan doesn't have, you know, his summer house isn't Pergamum, right? But Satan does have a strong foothold in this city. Right? No one can definitively say what Jesus means when he says you live where Satan's throne is, but it could be a number of things. There was a lot of evil paganism going on in this city. Right? First of all, there was a 40-foot tall altar to Zeus in this city. It's one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. On top of that, you've got temples there for worshiping of Dionysus, Athena, uh, Demeter, and there's other gods as well. They're just temple upon temple uh, of people, of gods to worship. Along with that, you've got Pergamum is the official center of Rome in that Asian province. Right? So one of the people I, I read said that if, if in, in these cities, Ephesus would have kind of been like our New York City. Right? It's, a, it's a hub of commerce and uh, entertainment. 
And if Ephesus is like New York City, then Pergamum would have been like Washington, D.C. That's the center of the Roman world in that vicinity. And because of that, Rome engaged in emperor worship, and so the imperial cult made its home in this place. And it would ripple out the same way that the gospel rippled out. It would go into all the different provinces from this place. So needless to say, there is a lot of darkness surrounding this city. A whole lot of bad stuff. And so what Jesus likely means about living where Satan's throne is located, he probably means that you are, you are in a melting pot of pagan worship. There are so many different things that are going on in this city that are pushing against the Christian faith that this is essentially where Satan lives. This is where his throne is. And so it wouldn't have been easy for Christians to live out their life in this place, right? There's a lot of darkness that they're trying to push back against and the darkness is pushing against them. Uh, And we do know that through the church there, uh, they did hold fast the name of Christ, but some people were dying for their faith. Jesus mentions in verse 13 that the church remained faithful even in the days of Antipas, a, a faithful witness who was put to death in that city. And so as they're living out this faith, some of the believers are experiencing persecution even to the point of death. And so Jesus says, hey, you guys are holding fast to my name. Well done for that. Some of you are even holding to the point to my name to the point of your own death. Uh, But as is the case in most of these churches, all but two, Jesus has something against the church in Pergamum. And what he has against them, while the church does still hold fast to the name of Jesus there, they have begun to compromise their worship and their faith by bringing in some of the aspects of pagan worship that occurs in the city. Jesus says some of them are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. While mentioning this, in case you haven't read the book of Numbers lately, what he's referring to there is that in Numbers chapter verses 22 to 24, there is a, an, a prophet in Israel named Balaam who was not a friend of God or the Israelites. Which, I mean, that seems kind of strange for God to appoint a prophet that had no love for God and had no uh, love for the uh, Israelite people. He's willing to sell his surfaces to the highest bidder. And yet... We see this, and there is a king who wants to bid for his services. There's a Moabite king named Balak, and Balak wanted Balaam to speak judgment against the people of Israel because he wanted bad things to happen to them. He wanted them to, the, the nation to fall and to crumble, and Balaam was willing to do that. He wanted to speak out. He wanted to get paid by this king, but every time he opened his mouth to speak judgment, blessing came out. So he goes, he tried it three times. He tries to speak judgment, and every time he opened his mouth, a blessing to the Israelite people came out. And Balak was upset. He's like, what am I paying you for? I want judgment. And Balaam tells him, he says, I can only say what God tells me to say. And he was not able to speak against the people of God because God would not allow his prophet to speak evil against Israel. But there's a twist. Balaam tells Balak how he can get God to curse the Israelite people. He goes to him and he says, Send Moabite women 
into Israel. Have these Moabite women woo the Israelite men and have them intermarry with the Israelite men. And in doing so, these Moabite women can lead the Israels into turning away from proper worship of God. Right? So when Scripture talks about us not being unequally yoked, this is what it's talking about. It has nothing to do with different nations and everything to do with different faiths. Right? A Christian should not marry a non-Christian because what happens when two become one, you start to intermingle with everything of each other's lives. And so what was happening here is that these Moabite women came in, they came in with their paganism, they came in with their uh, sacrifices to idols, they came in with their sexual immorality, and they enticed the Israelite men to go down this path. And as they went down this path, they began to fade further and further away from the proper worship of Yahweh. And this plan eventually works. They turned the hearts and the minds of the Israelite people away from Yahweh, and they began practicing sexual immorality. They began eating food that was sacrificed to idols, and God curses the people. In one fell swoop, 24,000 people died as part of God's curse. And so there are people here at the church in Pergamum who have begun to tarnish their worship of God because they've begun to include aspects of their culture into their worship. Right? So they've begun eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. Now Paul said that you know, eating food that was sacrificed to idols is not a big deal because idols are not a real thing. But as long as you have that mindset that that's not a real thing, I'm not actually eating food that's sacrificed to an idol because an idol isn't a thing. It isn't real. But they were actively worshiping as they were sacrificing that food, as they were eating that food. They were doing this as an act of worship to those idols. And as well, they began to uh, deal with a whole lot of sexual immorality. Most of these temples uh, were fertility-minded And so they would have temple prostitutes that would go out and they would engage in sexual activity with whoever was willing to worship in that way. And all of a sudden, now the church is beginning to implement some of that worship into their life as a church. And God says, no. He says, you hold hold fast to my name, but all of a sudden you're adding stuff in that is not proper worship. Along with that, some began to hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans, we don't don't know much about the Nicolaitans. We still don't know much about the Nicolaitans. We don't know who they are, where they came from. Their exact origin is unclear. Uh, All we hear about them from the Scriptures we find here in Revelation chapter 2. In his letter to the Ephesians, Jesus states that he hates the practice of the Nicolaitans. He said that in the first church that we looked at. We don't know what those practices are. But he hates those practices. And he was glad that the church in Ephesus had pushed back against those practices because, remember, they were holding fast to their doctrine. And so they've pushed them back, but some of the people in this church are welcoming those practices. And there's a quote from an early church father named uh, Clement of Alexandria regarding the Nicolaitans who says, They abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. So we don't know exactly what this is, but basically they're, they're of the mindset is if it feels good, do it. Whatever it is, if you want to eat too much, then eat too much. If you want to drink too much, then drink too much. 
If you want to have sex too much, have sex too much. Whatever it is, whatever they can give themselves to, the Nicolaitans were willing to do that. And so they indulged themselves and their teaching combined with the Bible began to pervert this idea of grace and it replaced religious liberty. So there are certain things, like I mentioned, of eating food that's sacrificed to idols. Like there's certain liberty that we don't have to hold to anymore because we don't follow the ceremonial law anymore. And so there are certain things that if I don't feel convicted because you know I can eat this meat sacrificed to the idol, then I can do that because I'm not actually worshiping that idol. But there is some restraint there because if that causes you to stumble, Paul tells us not to do those things. But I have liberty in that. And what these people are pushing is that you no longer have to worry about liberty because you have license now. So it's this idea that God loves you and His grace covers all, and so therefore you can do whatever you want. Live however you want, sleep with whoever you want, cheat whoever you want. You can do whatever you want because God is going to forgive you because He loves you so much. Right, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5, speaks against this idea. Right, this is where there is an act of sexual immorality that's happening in the church in Corinth, and Paul essentially says, what are you doing? He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. So he's sleeping with his stepmother. He says, and you are arrogant. Right? They're proud of the fact that they're allowing this to go on in the church. Nobody's batting an eye at this gross sinfulness. He says, you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. So this, this notion that we can do whatever we want, we can worship however we want, is a false notion. Like God has put limits on sexuality. God has put limits on the methods of our worship. And we don't have license to do whatever we want. Paul will again say in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? He says, absolutely not. How can we have died to sin and still live in it? Like The moral law still applies across the board. And if God has said this is sinfulness, then, and He demands our righteousness, He demands our pursuit of holiness, then we cannot say, all right, I can do whatever I want because God will forgive me for it. Right? If we have died to sin in Christ, then we cannot continue to live in sin. But He says, you guys have given yourselves over to eating food sacrificed to idols. You are practicing sexual immorality. You are performing whatever the Nicolaitans enjoyed to do, you've fallen in line with that. So what does he say? There in verse 16, he says, they need to repent. Otherwise, they will have to deal with Jesus. Now that sounds a lot scarier than that I know where you live statement. He says, the sword of his mouth will be used against the church 
and there's no chance of standing up to the creator of all things. When he has set his mind against you, he says, I will take that sword out of my mouth and I will use it against you. The church will no longer exist. Jesus says that anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, he will give hidden manna and a white stone with a new name inscribed on it. So this is more of this idea. If these people will turn away from their sin, God is willing to forgive. If these people are willing to endure and not go into this sinful, these sinful habits, if they will conquer and, and survive all of this until the end, he says he will give them provision and a new name that's inscribed on this white stone. So this idea is that God will provide for you and that you will live forever. That new name that he's talking about is salvation. We endure to the end, and at the end, we have eternal life. That is the gift that we have been given through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so, what do we do with this? We see what the church in Pergamum was up against so what do we do with it? Well, we live in a time where the world looks at the Christian church and they demand tolerance. They want us to look at their lives. They want us to, to say, hey, there's nothing wrong with the way that you're choosing to live your life. If you're choosing to you know, build up massive estates for yourself and not give anything to the poor, that's fine. You want to sleep with whoever you want to sleep with, that's fine. You want to do, you know, abort babies, that's fine. Everything that you want to do is fine. Why? Because God loves you and would never tell you how to live your life. I mean, we see this all over the place. And we see constantly that churches begin to fade into this tolerance. Right? All of a sudden, because the crowd says that homosexuality is the new norm, churches are welcoming homosexuals into their membership. There's no, there's no issues with that anymore. And we see more and more, like, churches are not speaking out against abortion. They're not speaking out against theft or or divorce or any of these things that God has very specifically said, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my people, then you are going to strive to live a righteous life. The more it gets normalized in our culture, the more it begins to seep into the church. But we must remember that the most loving thing that we can do when pointing to a holy and righteous God is to call out sin and beg people to repent. Like We don't treat people harshly because sinful people act sinfully. But we do call out that sin and we call for repentance and we strive to get them to see the God that we worship is not tolerating these things. right? If you think about it, right? if you look in Scripture, what does the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 and the four living creatures in chapter 4 of Revelation never stop saying? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They do not say, tolerant, tolerant, tolerant is the Lord God Almighty. In Isaiah chapter 6, 
Listen to this. Verses 1 to 5, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The temples of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, listen, woe is me, for I am ruined. He says, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies, he thought he was dead. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. He declares what is right and what is wrong based on his nature. He declares how we are to live our life. And just because culture says that's crazy, that's arcane, you know, this is old, like why would you even believe in this stuff, right? Why would you hold to that? Do you know what year it is? Like God does not change. Remember when it said he's the first and the last? He is eternal, the only one that never changes, and so that, the stuff that he has declared sinful from Genesis chapter 3 is the same stuff that will be sinful a billion years from now. And it is not loving for us to, to take this notion that somehow God is going to bend, God is going to forgive uh, without repentance these gross sinful actions that people want to pursue. Right? There is a judgment coming for every single one of us the righteous and the unrighteous, and one day they will stand before this holy, holy, holy judge and they will give an account of how they live their life and whether they are going to stand among their own merit or whether they're going to stand in the righteousness given to them by Jesus. And for us to say there's nothing wrong with your sinful life, do as you please, and you're welcome in the church, it is showing that we have no love for them at all. If you knew for a fact that someone was going to stand before a holy and righteous God and they would not tolerate and he would not tolerate their sinful lifestyle and, and we just continue to go, it's okay, he loves you anyway. He might love them, but we don't. If we are not willing to step into the gap there and say, this is wrong, then we don't love them. And if we see people in our church begin to lean in those directions and begin to follow those paths and we don't do something about it, then how, how is it that we can possibly say that we love each other? How can we possibly say that we love the church if we are willing to let gross sinfulness come in and start to turn this into a cesspool as opposed to the righteous bride of Christ that it's supposed to be? So, I mean, we live in a time that is very similar to what Pergamum was going through. And we have the same temptations because pushing back against this stuff is hard and it's going to get harder. And so it's, there's going to be a lot of temptation to begin to weaken on some of this stuff that, that seems harsh and mean. But we're not supposed to be mean to the people. We're supposed to be harsh and mean to the ideas. We love the people. We beg them to repent, to see the offer of sacrifice in, or the offer of salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus. We present that to them and beg them to accept it. But we cannot and will not sign off 
on some of these sinful actions that go against the holiness of God. So we must stand firm. We must be willing to endure to the end with this idea that the holy and righteous God will not stand to see His church compromise with culture. Let's pray together. Father, it is my desire that we would be people who love you beyond all else in this life. That we would be people who desire to see people come to faith. That we would not look upon those who are struggling with sinful lifestyles. We, we wouldn't look on, down on them as though we have somehow become better than they are. But Lord, that we have had our eyes open to the truth of what sin is and what it does to our soul and what it does to our relationship with you. And I pray that we would beg people to have their eyes open to the truth of what it means to come to salvation in Jesus. And that being saved does not give us license to sin. It doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want. And be like, oh, well, you'll forgive us later. Help us to realize that you are holy, holy, holy. And that you are, you desire to see us become more and more like Jesus. And we can't change without the Holy Spirit's help. And I pray that he would be present in our heart and our lives. And as we go from this place today, that we would change just a little bit every day, become more and more like Jesus. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.